Is the sound terrible? As you can probably hear, I'm actually driving. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, it sounds like you're in a wind tunnel. Yeah, but yeah, well, I can hear you fine. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it says something about the internal acoustics of, of a Tesla three that you think I'm in, in a, in a wind tunnel, but fair enough. Um, <laughs> hopefully it won't be too insufferable. Um, well, good. Uh, you actually, it's funny. We, for the first time, perhaps in four request history, we did not have the total shit show that usually happens when we invite a guest, like somehow the guest never quite gets pulled in and there's always this fumbling and it feels very tentative, but it didn't happen this time. So, um, let's maybe let some of the listeners, file in sure so are you in california right now uh as of the past half hour uh i'm just north of sacramento headed west going from my desert retreat back into um the golden state so to speak oh okay okay cool <laughs> so yeah normally i'm taking these calls over starlink in the middle of nowhere but in this case i'm i'm headed i'm headed to this fine state um uh Okay. Which, yeah. Which, so, but we're here to talk about your company, Hydrohost, whose name I love because it's um, it's a Greek uh, classical Greek reference. Uh, it's funny this company that I just raised money for. I tried giving it a classical Greek name because I'm that flavor of cultural elitist, and <laughs> I couldn't find one that actually fit. But in your case, Hydrohost fits perfectly. If anyone is familiar with the legend of the Hydra and slicing off one head and two more growing, so why don't you tell us about? what hydro hosting does and then we can, we can dig into yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we also named it, uh, uh, my engineering team. Uh, oh, it's an homage to the Marvel series as well. So the, uh, he, like, so he kind of plays on both the, the high, you know, snooty elite level, uh, and then also down to this sort of populist level. So, um, the, uh, yeah, so, so we've been working on this technology for like over two years and, uh, we just, uh, closed around with founders fund leading. Um, and as, as the name implies, uh, the goal is to build a bulletproof infrastructure that provides the type of resilience and security that, uh, a lot of the things that were promised in public cloud that sort of have not come to fruition. And, and as well as like, what's different about us is like, we, we operate as your predominant host. And so just as you, you know, would go to AWS or Azure, GPC or data center, the interface and how you actually use our technology is the same. But the difference is that we are actually not running any of the nodes. So all of the infrastructure is actually, whether you want to deploy to AWS or you want to deploy to Azure, or you want to like split everything out within your infrastructure, where we are basically like a switchboard uh, in, as a means of automating your infrastructure and your deployments and the security across all these different nodes. So we're at, at a high level, like edge computing in a box, uh, where you can decentralize your infrastructure across regions by whatever sort of parameters you have, cost parameters or security parameters, or you don't want to use public cloud or you want to use public cloud for some things, use data centers for other things. Uh, and it's like, that's what kind of goes to, uh, to the name uh, Hydra. It's like, imagine, you know, the multiple heads being sort of all over, uh, all over four different continents, and being able to sort of pick and choose instantaneously where you want to go, when you want to go, uh, and and as part of the built-in technology, because uh, obviously if you give people the flexibility to uh, cross-deploy and be cross-cloud instantaneously out of box, you also have to have some security and resiliency mechanisms built into that, and that's where the cutoff one head and many more may appear. So the technology is actually uh, self-healing, uh, which is Previously, you would need to you know, more or less um, build out yourself and build out a, 
a DevOps and site reliability framework to where you could have failovers and you could have, uh, you know, a kind of variance in terms of cold, warm to hot. Uh, with our technology, because you're, you're agnostic out of a box, it essentially self heals and spends up new resources as it sort of detects latency or outages or things like that. Uh, and, and so it keeps you alive. And then we send you more or less like a notification that like, Hey, we had to spin something else up, uh, because the node went offline or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that, that goes to the name. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about the, uh, solving, you know, the ever structure question about where you deploy and how you deploy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and it comes built in with the, uh, all these sort of security privacy stuff that you also don't get in, in the cloud. Uh, okay, so, uh, and again, for those who are still aren't getting the Hydra reference, it was one of Hercules' tasks to defeat this monster with a bunch of heads, and he'd slice one off and more heads would grow, and he, what he ultimately would do was actually burn the stump in the, in the, in the Greek myth. So, yeah. we'll get into how it is that you could potentially burn Hydra hosting stumps, but the, the, the interesting thing about Hydra hosting, right, and, you know, the way you describe it, you know, is very much an engineer's way of describing it in terms of deploying and AWS layers, but the reason why I find it interesting in the context of, you know, our current discourse, right, is that there's a massive debate around things like content moderation, cancellation, what have you, at the sort of application layer. And so this crowd, you know, the pull request audience probably understands what a network stack is, but just very quickly for those who don't, the idea being the thing that you're actually looking at when you talk about, like, quote, unquote, the internet is the, you know, the application layer, and then you have layers beneath that that are, you know, TCP IP, the routing type, and then, like, how do you actually connect to the Internet, your Wi-Fi router or whatever. And so, you know, historically, at least until very recently, like, either legally or morally, just speaking very broadly, it was sort of thought that the person who owns the application layer, i.e. Facebook, Twitter, and kind of owns the user relationship, well, I mean, you know, Modulo Section 230, they're kind of on the hook for what shows up there to some degree or another. But the thought yeah. is that the, the deeper layers in the stack will literally just route the packets around. It's like, you know... It's it's funny to reverse the classic thing. It's like above their abstraction layer to actually worry about what traffic they're actually handling because a it would be t you know technically hard to do and legally and morally we just don't think about things that way. Um, but recently that's kind of changed a little bit and hydro hosting is interesting in that it extends the ability to actually swap out you know a different cloud if if it's the case that one of your cloud provider refuse you know cancels you, hydro host could step in and find. A solution although of course it's not the only utility yeah. for it but but that's yeah that's one of them yeah exactly i mean because it, what what we are providing for clients customers is optionality which uh previously they would have to build in themselves and have a whole devops engineering layer to actually utilize and to design something like we design sort of out of the box uh but you know the the framework i think ben thompson has like a good article about how to think about content moderation and so where do the responsibilities and duties lie across the stack? Because as you said, the like closer you are to UX and users touching, uh, the, the sort of more responsibility is probably given and more discretion is given uh, across that sort of application layer. But as you sort of go up, you generally want it to be as much as a private utility as possible uh, and be as much, you know, sort of like in, end users can sort of make decisions about what is what they want to read, what they want to choose. And that you're, mess, you're more or less an electricity provider, right? You are, you are water and, uh, to a building. And, and, I, and I think that that's where they're it, it kind of coming. I see it coming from like two different directions, which is like there is both the uh, sort of a, an a priori sense coming from. Uh, the actual providers themselves that are actually causing this as a conversation 
uh, among regulators and countries, but also from the uh, sort of political perspective uh, that the internet as a sort of meta idea is also fly fracturing to where the, you know, previously we're all kumbaya with the America-based internet and everyone was sort of coming in and using our frameworks. But uh, as the, as we've shown with both, you know, where you have physically been into like the war front to, uh, you know, the Great Wall of China, that the future of the internet is no longer a, a monolithic uh, idea, which is like America centric. And I think that the, there's going to be a fracturing across the internet to where even the plumbing itself essentially would be changing. And, and you could see this from a perspective of like national security, where a, a country would view its own hosting environment, its own servers as a national security uh, uh, you know, question, whether it is to order something on your phone uh, to get it delivered to your house, or it's like where your government uh, compute storage networking is run. Uh, two questions related to data privacy, right? That, that even within America, you're seeing a fracturing across different state lines about what is, uh, what do consumer, consumer rights have? How should uh, different types of data be handled? And, and the, the fracturing is sort of away from uh, centralized uh, providers, which is of course happening at the application level with like, you know, Substack and Signal and, you know, ProtonMail and kind of like this like new generation of uh, alternatives, going with the alternative economy. Uh, you're also gonna see that I think at the hosting level as, as the hosting level becomes more and more of the areas that turn into, uh, you know, regulatory pathways that are similar to other sort of public utilities uh, in how sort of how they're regulated. So, which is why we've uh, designed what we did is that that sort of assumes that future is that something needs to be able to do handoffs between these different types of quote unquote internets uh, as they create new kingdoms and new fiefdoms and new rules, uh, which previously right now is being absolutely 100% handled within Amazon uh, or Azure GPC. Whenever you use them, you assume their networking patterns. Uh, and, and so I think the future is that these sort of centralized providers are having you know, one location in Europe to run all of you know, Europe's compute for Amazon is just like not gonna be what people want. And, there, and there's a whole other sort of technical component uh, which is a, you know, you, I know you have a lot of experience in, which is like computers moving closer to the customer. Uh, so phones are more powerful, laptops are more powerful, browsers are more powerful, but the infrastructure itself has like not really caught up to uh, those demands. And so networking is becoming sort of the next area of, of innovation that's happening uh, where, you know, that's why CDNs are so popular, caching is so popular is because everyone benefits, right? The, the application benefits because it's cheaper for the new compute, the user benefits because it's faster, and the infrastructure provider itself also benefits because it's not having to throw data across the country, right? That's clogging the pipes. Instead, it's pushing data closer to the customers or everyone wins. The problem is, is like, how do you do that? Like, and, and how do you do it in a way that which uh, scales appropriately? Uh, and so that's why you're, you know, seeing multiple infrastructure providers kind of make shifts around and starting building their own CDNs as that becomes, you know, how computes going to be managed in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's still kind of interesting how, what was traditionally thought of, as you said, as a utility and fairly apolitical, right? Like, you know, power and light and water type stuff um, does get politicized. The, the first time that I ever, and, and maybe there's instances before, but at least in my understanding, the first time that I saw like the network layer actually emerge as part of the debate, I think goes back to an op-ed that uh, Matthew Prince of Cloudflare wrote in like, I want to say 2013 or 14, maybe. Um, and yeah. he, basically, he basically said, I forget, it's been a while since I've read it, but basically I woke up, I think they were hosting like, you know, the Sturmer or some like literal Nazi type website. Yeah, it and, a Nazi website, yeah. And, and I think he decided not to host it, but then he had this sort of crisis of conscience about it. 
and said, you know, somebody like me shouldn't decide kind of what is free speech. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and at least, to, again, to my knowledge, that's the first time that, like, the long hand of, like, moral culpability has reached all the way down <laughs> into the actual into the actual stack. And, and as you said, it's, it's more than just even, like, a domestic political morality thing. The, the Internet is fracturing. TikTok, I remember I was, I was at Branch Metrics, which is an attribution company, and as attribution companies do, see, lo- you know, see lots of app data. Like, the day that Modi banned TikTok in India... You just saw it just like drop like a rock, <laughs> like just literally just one day to the next. TikTok was just gone in India, and yeah. um, and obviously American apps, even though TikTok runs in the United States, American apps are not actually free to run in China. Um, exactly. And um, and then of course Russia does its own thing. Not to even mention the whole cyber war going on between Russia and Ukraine now. Um, and it's you know it's it's intriguing, and I, I think you're right to frame it as in the original conception of this sort of cyber libertarian view of the internet, it was very American, right? And I think Americans, because they're so wrapped up in their own culture and they don't see the limits of their own sort of imperium, they don't realize that a a lot of the values that they hold are actually American values. They're actually not universal values. And, um, and of course, in an increasingly globalized world, you start seeing that a little bit more if you look, but, um, but in any case, yeah, those American values, of just infinite free speech don't necessarily even hold in America anymore. Right. Like I, I remember like EFF, like, like the, the sort of lefty anti-establishment position used to be anti-censorship, right? Like the internet treats censorship like damage and routes around it, which isn't quite true, but in any case, it, it's, it's a nice tagline and somehow that's not, that's not true anymore. And so I, I wonder at the end of the day, in terms of, you know, hydro hosting magically reproducing itself and evading government intrusion, whether that's going to be mostly, Indian, Chinese, Russian, or even domestic American, uh, you know, <laughs> censorship. Well, 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 yeah, I, I think that, that what, what people like tech entrepreneurs in the internet need to kind of understand, like the, the, there, there is a lot of things that are happening to our industry that are like completely independent of us, and even our own actions, like Cloudflare's actions or AWS's action or PayPal's action to sort of dip into politics. As you know, I know you, you covered a lot and I've covered a lot in our various different you know channels on Twitter or writing. And, and I, that there's an other trend going on that's also applying a pressure from the other point of view, which is like, imagine like, like uh, the Ukraine conflict, right, that you're obviously intimately connected with, like the, the Russian cyber attack on Ukraine was very effective and also, almost like terrifying, right? It, like comparatively to their kinetic, their, their, their information warfare was amazing, right? They're, they're able to take uh, state websites offline for days, like the uh, citizens were unable to access like key resources in their country. And then the connect war happened and then it all fell apart, right? So, and, and so I think that for the lesson that many countries saw from that, uh, including, you know, adversarial nations like China to friendly nations like in, in the European Union is the sort of criticality of like things that they previously took for granted under the assumption of American values runs the internet. And, and now that like the, hey, like imagine like in, in you know, I'm based in, in Colorado, like imagine if there was a cyber attack on, you know, Xfinity here, where uh, not only could I not like just watch Netflix, but like a a hospital could not access medical records, a police could not run their you know voice over the internet, like like the 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 idea of like attacking that, which is like you know what you need that like, fifty to one hundred engineers maybe like focused on something like that versus like doing a messy kinetic conflict. This this is where the other pressure from the other point of view, and and you know I guess add another layer in there, which is the sort of ignorance of many people regarding the internet because of you know. Uh, geriatrics continue to run all the free world. So you have that combined together. 
and you have this like pressure that's being applied to like the government thinks it needs to do something about this. And, and it needs it from a perspective of like, it would literally be a disaster for Denver if that happened. Like thousands of people would die overnight, right? And it would be as if it was a missile attack, right? Uh, and I think that that's the, the uh, you start seeing some of this worked out in Obama in his late, in his late term administration, definitely under Trump started thinking about like, how, did the, how does the internet fit into national security aspects as if like, you know, like Boeing and Lockheed, like Boeing and Lockheed, are not really companies, right? They're they're essentially national treasures that like the government finances, right? And and so the, you see the U.S. government, especially under Trump and even even under Biden, it's just continued under Biden, uh, thinking about the internet in a way that like what happened to Ukraine is is something that we 100% cannot tolerate. And so this is why the as you know, in some respects, it's like everybody when we're kumbaya in the American internet, which is like Web 1.0 onward. And then you saw China basically say, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to do our own internet. And that at first we're like, oh, whatever, they'll come around, right? When, when I guess when Zuck was learning Mandarin, right? Like, oh yeah, they'll come around, right? And and then they didn't. And then it's sort of one of those things of like it's a uh, zero to one failure, right? Where like if one person fails, then the whole system falls apart, right? And and that's kind of where I think we're going, which is like there will be of the American internet, which is like a lot of countries will buy into. Uh, but then even within that, you're going to see countries start creating their own hosting infrastructure as kind of the first layer uh, of protection. And I think that the app layer will become actually less important uh, over time unless they're politically involved in something. Uh, but you, I think you'll see the infrastructure side becoming increasingly important because it'll be, it'll be a national security question of like, can me as a small country, let's say, you know, like Belgium, um, just outsource all of my hosting to, you know, let's say it goes out of where AWS is main center is, but like, let's say it goes to the Netherlands, right? Like, is that really, as a national security question, is that really pertinent, right? Is that something that would be good for our nation to think about, right? And and I think that you're going to have a rolling effect for the next decade, especially like also imagine, right, that like, uh, you know, boxes are cheaper than ever before, right? Metal, right? Metal is faster, right? Metal is, is better. Metal is much more resilient. You're seeing edge computing, you know, becoming the hot thing from Cloudflare down to AWS, like, and, and you're and you're seeing that also from the pressure from the end user also wants this too, and and so I think that the hosting layer becomes basically increasingly fragmented massively. Not even you know uh, I know you're Web three guy too so, as we are. So like even that whole thing like not even like let's add that into the the scope of like decentralization. Like this is the the, the wave of this decade, and I think hosting becomes because of pressure. Not even just like within the tech community of its decisions is making in, this, in new type of technology, but literally like the non-technical world also is going to want this because they're viewing it from that national security lens or, you know, resiliency of the country lens rather than like thinking the idea of like, like the American internet was this one centralized happy go place as what AWS in, in GPC and Azure were sort of built on that assumption of like, we all, you know, we run the internet, everyone's happy in the same thing. And in reality, that's not going to be the future. And so the, the fragmentation, has, has started across the different uh, different layers. Uh, I think that what's interesting about hosting is that it's also being forced from a like uh, a, a, a almost like an apolitical, just like you know, we just view this as a national security question rather than just like should someone be able to say something, right? That's like the tip of the the iceberg. There's all this other movement happening. Right. I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned Web three, and it's funny like how many Web three services go down when there's like an AWS outage. It's not exactly. Often not nearly as decentralized as it claims to be. Um, yep. You know, I had speaking of fragmentation, one experience I had recently that was kind of interesting. I was using. Uh,
I randomly thing or something, and I lost some like camping site, and there's a massive pop-up that said, some here in Europe, you know, we're just not, sorry, we, we just don't comply with GDPR. We're just not going to sell you stuff. <laughs> and it's like, I think it's the first thing. Yeah. I know a few media sites did that early on, but it's a, it's a full, it's the first time that I've seen like real e-commerce basically just say, yeah, we're just not going to deal with you people. Um, and, you know, of yep. course, that's just a micro example, but there's there's much bigger examples. You know, it's, it's, it's weird, right? Because it, it does feel slightly counterintuitive to have effectively physical fragmentation of the internet when it literally is this sort of very virtual thing, right? Like the sort of techno-gnosticism whereby our lives are going into this virtual disembodied electronic plane. At the end of the day, the machines actually live somewhere, <laughs> right? Yep. Those are still such the laws and men with guns. And so like, you know, the full singularity and our little techno rapture can't quite happen yet, right? If ever, be because of that fact, right? Um, yeah. No, you're, you're, and physical things are something that politicians understand, right? And, and that right. goes to the sort of the, the ignorance point of view that like, that, you know, uh, GDPR, despite like, I think reasonably good intentions, you know, like, it, although I know you're a, you're a bear on data privacy in general, uh, from the consumer perspective, like the, the, like the aspects of like, what I was trying to do, I think was like good intentions, but it's just totally useless. It's just like, it doesn't do anything it's supposed to do really functionally. Right. And, and it's just annoying now. Right. But you see that like that, like the, there's new legislation. I don't know if it actually, where it is in committee right now, but the, the new uh, data privacy legislation that's being pushed through in the EU parliament uh, is even more aggressive than GDPR. And, and it affects about like data and transit and things like that, like data through pipes and countries. Uh, so like, I, I think generally speaking, like the pipes themselves, if you like look at the comparison to like electricity grids, like the pipes themselves, I think will still be functionally, you know, agnostic across these different, you know, country providers in terms of like how to transmit through the country. Uh, because it's incentivized in both parties, everyone makes money. Uh, but I think like how that data is like handled and who is the primary person responsible for that. If like there's a subpoena, right. Or if there's like a taxation question, I think that that's where this, this fragmentation is going to push itself. Uh, and, and it's just, again, like users want data faster. Like they're going to do more on their mobile device. They're going to be doing more, you know, as they're like moving about town and the idea of like throwing, you know, a call, a, a, you know, some sort of request to go to a different country, right? You I mean, you're going to be sitting there for like half a minute, right? And so they would rather just figure like, how do we, how do we create like a, you know, like think about like, how could you cache a whole layer of your, of your, you know, the, the whole application, not just like the sort of in delivery of content as like Cloudflare does, but like how could you literally design the whole infrastructure itself to be uh, cached in a similar way as you do, you know, images or a flashery website like Cloudflare sort of manages. And, and that's like where we play is like, we think that that is gonna be more of how the future of infrastructure looks is like, you know, your application itself, which previously, you know, let's say built under web two premises would be, you know, isolated to like one sort of centralized provider is now actually being, you know, split in terms of multiple locations and those locations are agnostic to each other so that you can actually move compute and storage around uh, and, and make it to where this is what the customers want. And theoretically, you actually would save money that way uh, because, you know, the most expensive thing in public cloud is ingress, egress. Uh, so the actual, you know, running it, it, it within that cloud environment uh, is, you know, the is theoretically like less. So uh, the, the, these movements, I think, are are happening at a, in a multi-factor level uh, that like the cancellation stuff is like just a, a mirror image of that, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, data does have an address, right? I think it's Russia that actually has laws around Russian companies must keep at least one copy of the data within Russian territory precisely for, like, subpoena slash government oppression purposes. Like, there yeah. has to be a physical machine that men with guns can get to. And then, of course, in the whole TikTok business, you know, for years they've sworn up and down that U.S. TikTok, you know, the data was located locally in the U.S. But it, I think recent allegations have shown that it's not true or that the Chinese team could actually access the U.S. data no matter what. And so the whole thought that there was some sort of firewall was meaningless anyhow, which, of course, TikTok skeptics kind of suspected all along. Um, yes. But it's interesting that data has a data has a passport and a home. Um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, like a, a lot of the tendency is to not have the hub and spoke model of like server and, and like a lot of what Apple is doing for a lot more of the logic on itself, like literally not even in the cloud at all. Um, but that's going to be a gradual thing. And at the end of the day, the bulk of the data is still going to live somewhere. Um, but yeah, it'll be weird. It's weird, right? Like if you actually want to see this data fragmentation, other than my VPN experiment, it's hard to see it, right? I mean, one classic example is I, in 2017, I went to Cuba to go report on the internet there, which more or less didn't exist in any form that you or I would recognize. But that, that's a case in which like the country is kind of bricked off from the rest of the wider internet. They, they literally download the internet on like an external drive and like sell it to you. The internet is like a physical thing you carry around, mm -hmm. um, which, which is funny. It goes back to like an old school network quote about like, what is it? Never underestimate the bandwidth of a station wagon littered with tapes, like barreling down the highway. And so, um, which is still how some of this data gets transferred is from what I understand. But in any case, in the Cuba case, it's literally true. Like I, I was at the, at the offices of one of these paqueteros as they're making their paquete, paquete just means package. And he would literally mount them on a bus and just like send them off somewhere. And there was the internet going off to, to Eastern Cuba. Um, of yeah. course that's changed a little bit because now they actually have data on phones and stuff, but still to a large degree, those who don't have a lot of money actually access the internet that way. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I guess, yeah, I think Americans also, I, I, like you said, internet values are so baked into American values. The thought of, for example, of shutting down TikTok in the US, which Trump kind of floated but never really delivered on, was considered scandalous by anyone like center or, or center left, right? But again, it's in other countries, it's actually not that odd, right? The Indian government just turned off TikTok. And of course, the Chinese don't allow our apps to operate there at all. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, is that going to change? Do you think Americans are going to get more aggressive about actually policing and erecting borders around their own internet? Yeah, well, well it, it goes back to the, uh, uh, that comic, I mean, since we're, we're making an homage to a comic book series in, uh, in, in my name of my company. So the, the other one would be uh, the Manhattan Man, right? So uh, the, when, in that series, when, uh, you know, he sacrifices himself by blowing up parts of New York. Then he goes to Mars, right, and creates the other theory, right? It's classic Girardian sort of mimetic uh, analysis about like how humans think. And then because he saw that as the only way to sort of create peace on Earth was that they needed a superhero who fled to Mars that became evil and killed a bunch of people. And then everyone knows Harmony on Earth, right? And and so that was his only way, you know, his rational way of trying to uh, to achieve uh, sort of peace. And so I, I think that in terms of whether or not we continue to fight with each other about, you know, what on Twitter should be allowed on Twitter, you know, what should be on Substack. And like, you know, there, there's now like trying, to, there's an attempt to try to make, you know, Substack a like faux pas, sort of like, oh my gosh, you're one of those people that has a Substack. Like there's, there's these, 
the cultural, you know, bad mimesis kind of being floating around internally. I think it kind of depends on like our sort of overall posture to uh, to China and you know maybe maybe some some element of, of Russia as well. That that the the I think the more that there's an, a, a weight and an orientation to that this being a foreign policy question and in, in, in foreign policy orientation, the less that we'll actually focus on. Uh, you know whether or not something, whether or not you know a, a president should have a Twitter account or not, uh, which is which is like sort of like mainstream TV level, you know, uh, 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 intellectual sort of discussion uh, versus like the the you know the movements that kind of leap up to the point to where uh, you know a president doesn't have a Twitter account uh, is like these are like kind of the bigger waves that are happening. So so if if there is like you know I think a, a view of our own infrastructure and our own sort of views of what the internet should be if that increasingly becomes an american question of like this is what it means to be in the internet and this is like our internet similar as if there's you know this has happened to other industries too like think about like you know the car industry right or the hoteling industry or any industry banking industry right like every one of these industries have has gone through this moment of where it's like no we are like an american bank and here's what we do and here's how we actually do these things the internet is going to go through the same thing uh, and because every other industry has, has done the same thing, uh, and and so the like you said that the uh, I'm not of the perspective that um, you know which which some of the you know, Web three folks are in is like the end of the nation state. Like I I don't I don't think that that is a, uh, a anywhere close to a near term reality, and I also think it, it it violates some like very key assumptions about humanity and and so sort of the anthropology of man and in the internet doesn't change that. Uh, that there, there is still a desire to, I mean, just look at, you know, uh, the Ukrainian war, right? So like, there still is a desire and attachment to uh, physical places and physical identities that are attached to a lineage of history. And, and so that I think is going to end up being trumping a lot of the, as you applied very earlier on, sort of like the libertarian paradise of like, you know, some Star Trek future of like, we're, we're all in the same blo- you know, blob together and we're all so super happy. Like rather, I think that the internet's going to encourage, you know, some form of like uh, uh, fracturing because it, it, it makes it cheaper and easier to create your own communities and your own silos. Uh, and uh, this this wave of, of centralizing, decentralizing or, you know, the centralizing effects of like AWS or Facebook or Google are built on other sort of uh, functional business questions about, you know, cost of servers to uh, like how do you uh, effectively run a search engine at scale but there is there is a, a deconstruction element of that, which is which goes into um, I call it the League of Nations uh, uh, fallacy, right? That the the theoretical idea of like the, you know Woodrow Wilson, like oh my gosh, we just like we'll get all along and like we all sit together and like super everyone's super happy, and and the failure of that was actually well they didn't want that, right? And and, and not many countries and many people don't want to play on the same playing ground, right? They want to have their own playground. Uh, which is why included in our constitution is the right of uh, freedom association, right? So, so that is, I think, the under underwhelming, uh, or sorry, underwhelming appreciation among the tech community about the importance of of anthropology in the assumption of technology design. That it ends up that actually most people don't want to do that, and and they don't want to be on the same unified monolithic platform because they have different values and they have different ways of seeing the world, different appreciations of color, things like that, and so. The, the the mega you know corporations you know big tech whatever uh, they can't feed that you know they, they can't actually serve those those people just as you know the, the the famous you know MBA analysis about like why Walmart failed in India right like this isn't just like tech isn't independent 
of, you know, humans are still the ones that are using the internet, right? There is not Skynet that can self-finance itself in a, in a, some sort of like, you know, money list and, and, and scarcity free environment, uh, AKA Star Trek. So that, 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 that doesn't exist. Like the, the, the restraints that Walmart had when actually deployed to India and, and that whole failed situation was that it did not account for that the way that American shop in Walmart is not the way that India, India shops. And so that same sort of metaphor applies to Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and like, and, and so the, you know, like the, the, uh, the, the reason why Facebook bought WhatsApp, right. It's like that, that's not something that that type of like interface and the way that that works from a global perspective is much more natural. Like the, what, what's the name of like those Chinese apps, right. They have like everything together in like a single place. There's like a name of it. Like the, like that. Yeah, no, yeah, there's like a name because yeah, there's a couple of them, right? So like the so like that is not a way that we understand how to use the internet, right? And and I've downloaded it when I've been in China, and like I don't even like understand what's going on, right? Because I'm programmed on my culture the way I should interface, right? And 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 I think that that's like the the uh, the within broader Silicon Valley, uh, like I think very little appreciation for those uh, cultural and anthropolog uh, anthropological sort of differences, um, and and politics is, is one form of that. Yeah, I mean, I think Silicon Valley definitely looks at the world through a particular lens and often gets it wrong. But, I, you know, I would disagree a little bit. I, I'm, as you can imagine, I'm actually not bullish on the nation state. I mean, it depends, depends what you call, depends what you mean when you mean the, the nation state, right? The nation state as we know it today, which is a bureaucratic state overlying some very willfully homogenized sort of ethnic identity. That's relatively recent invention, right? That's like a post-enlightenment phenomenon. Right. But if you mean by nation, the notion of like what you said is allegiance of some sort of national narrative. I mean, yeah, I agree. Humans have to be part of some sort of tribe and the scale of that tribe will necessarily be large these days. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know that I don't know that a federal republic like the United States that spans four time zones and 330 million people of, you know, literally every flavor and type across the entire human species. Uh, I don't know. I, I think the decoupling of bits and atoms, which is kind of what the Internet does in the sense that. We've decoupled information moving from the movement of atoms. Like, I'm old enough to remember. You're probably not quite old enough, Aaron. But I'm old enough to remember when, like, letters were still the primary way that people communicated, at least cheaply. And, like, it was still coupled to, like, the movement of a piece of paper. Like, that's how quickly things moved. And now we're living in a totally different world. And that that means that a human's actual worldview, their community, their values, what they perceive, don't actually follow the contours on the map that were typically delimited by language and by politics, like literally a political border. Like I think the internet actually does away with a fair bit of that. Even if like, again, at, at the hardware level, it's true that like the box lives somewhere, right? And in some sense has has a flag on it. I just, I think, I don't know. I think the internet is a, is a solvent for a lot of institutions and, and not necessarily in the near term, right? Like the Roman empire lingered along for centuries, but at some point, I mean, I would claim the nation state is already dying. If you look at the state capacity we have as a nation, it's radically different than we did in centuries past or in decades past. And so I would say that the death is not going to be instant. It's the nation state is already kind of geriatric. And yeah. again, it's you cite the example of Ukraine, which is interesting, although arguably it's like literally the last chapter in, you know, in like 19th or 20th century European nationalism. If you look at Ukrainian nationalism. The great heroes and efforts go back to the 19th and the 20th century, and they've kind of culminated in our in our present struggle, right? But that even that's kind of unusual, right? Like Europeans look at it and they're reminded of struggles that they had 80 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I remember when I defend Ukraine in the early days, 
and the pro-Russia people were, oh, this is going to end in a second, and they're all enthusiastic. And of course, now they've all shut the fuck up because, you know, Russia's little five-day war has lasted five months. It shows to be no sign of closing anytime soon. Um, I was like, do you realize you claim Ukraine is a fake nation, but more Ukrainians are fighting for Ukraine than Spaniards would fight for Spain right now or French for, you know, for France. And so it, it, it's like, you, sure, you can point at Ukraine and say the nation state isn't over yet, but I don't know that it's representative. If anything, it's like an exceptional experiment within the greater European construct. Like, I, I don't, I, I've actually saw a map at one point of a poll of like, you know, would you actually fight and die for your country? And the numbers in the old European states of Spain and France were, were horrible. It was like low level yeah. digits. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, it, yeah. it's it, yeah, because I think you're 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 asking like a good question, which which affects like how we think about it is from like you know building companies and is like like what does it mean to belong, right? And and there's like different sort of hypotheses that have gone around the nation and like uh, about like what is a nation and what is a state, and uh, and I think I think Americans as as you know you rightfully critique that like when uh, when I when I explain like you know so I read the Economist. And I explained why is because like, well, I want to know what's going on in, you know, African politics. So like when I meet someone from there, I can actually talk to them what's going on. And Americans are kind of like befuddled being like, wait, like what country is that? Where is that again? Like, what's the what's the history of this? Or, or even just like creating like specific moments of time about like when was Spain made a nation? Like what is, you know, so the history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire versus, you know, Prussia versus Germany. Like th these are all things that have sort of, you know, cultural dividends that last for a long period of time. And so the idea of the, uh, of like borders, right, that I think that from a neoliberal perspective, we sort of assume that what has been drawn on, on the globe, that we all were sort of trained in high school and junior high with like, this is what the world looks like is fixed. When you look at historically, it's like, it's not fixed. It changes a lot. And, and that like the, the, and how those sort of decisions happen can be quite arbitrary. Uh, and, you know, obviously the classic example is, you know, Iraq, right? So, so it more or less arbitrary about why those lines are there, right? And, and you have natural lines and then you have ethnic lines and you have like religious lines. Uh, and so like, I, I am, I am much more bullish on, you know, our hypothesis, which, you know, if we, if we get our sort of act together, which is like the, the American hypothesis is that the, the nation state is is built on values like a vision for the world that is accessible to uh everybody and and that like we we are creating a, a new type of nation that is built on values and vision uh about like what humanity could be and and other nations uh are not like that like i'm i i am uh you know my, my grandparents came from from china and they fled at the sort of the fall of communism when they couldn't get to taiwan and and so uh, you know, I've been to China a lot, and the uh, if you talk to them about like what does it mean to be belong, what does it mean to be you know sort of part of a nation, they have like a very different kind of conceptualization about like you know because they grew up in China and and that that's like they have a, a different th way of thinking about the social contract with with the government. Uh, you know, if you would call the CCP, you know, actually having a social contract, but you know, you know what I mean, like like, like their their identity. Is is significantly more attached to their tribe, into their ethnicity, into their their historical lineage, in terms of how they were sort of trained under CCP propaganda, and and that is like very very heavily attached to being Han, and and so like I'm Han and my dad's Han, and and so there's almost like no storytelling around <laughs> around you know minorities or the sort of other people groups that are in China, and and so uh, I I think that the 
there's like a, actually like a YouTube channel that I really love that basically describes historical events from the perspective of the adversaries of the U.S. And, and it's like, it, it, it's so interesting. Not that, of course, like I agree with that perspective, like, you know, you and I are both heterodox because it gives you like sort of immense empathy for the way in which other people can process information and data and how they actually will make decisions. And, and when it comes to like when you're, you're thinking about a, uh, you know, launching a product in like, various countries uh, and just thinking about like the actual scale and go to market of your, of your application. This is, this is why like, you know, something like Instagram uh, is, you know, immensely popular among Western, you know, ways of thinking. But like, if you, you know, go to countries that like do not celebrate that type of, you know, let's, let's use a, a more morose phrase of, of analyzing the application, but, you know, like a more vain, right. A more, uh, shallow way of presenting yourself and those cultures like that's not viewed as positive right it, it, it is it is viewed as as shameful and dis- dishonoring of your family name that you would use an application like that but in, in our cultural context we're sort of like oh yeah it's fun and like you know you you can make friends and you can get lots of likes and you know become a uh, an instagram influencer whatever i uh, but but in in other in other countries like that like i, I just think that the internet is 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 moving away from the the utility of just sending a letter and it's it's actually interfacing now more with like who we are as like people and and i and i do believe that because uh there is uh something sort of infinitely valuable about humans that it cannot be translated into bits and bytes that that will ultimately be the in the the decision making framework of who that will win and and as a you know maybe as to to uh founders fund is in the, in the title but the to maybe to uh you know, uh, praise them in some way of like, uh, of, of trying to like understand, like, you know, sort of framework, understand how like, so the world works. You know, they, there's a, like a, a saying in founders from world about like, do you believe in Star Trek or Star Wars? And I am much more Star Wars fan and rather than Star Trek fan. And a key element of that is like how actually intelligence, artificial intelligence, or they would say argument intelligence, how, how that fits into the, uh, the future of humanity. And in the Star Trek, you know, intelligence is artificial intelligence is played as much more hostile. And there's also like, you know, we sort of always escape this sort of like, you know, black, you know, the little magic box that introduces no scarcity. But yet somehow there's no scarcity. Uh, but yet then people go build all these like big things. But then like, how do you have then, you know, basic understanding about pricing and like, you know, aka like how actual economy works. And so you see Star Wars and Star Wars is more of a perspective uh, that, uh, you know, robot intelligence is there to advance sentient life and not just, you know, human life, but all the alien life as well, because there's something unique about that type of, uh, of creature that is not actually replaceable into bits and bytes. And, and that intelligence, artificial or augmented, is there to help humans. And, and so, like, that, that's always been, like, sort of my perspective of, like, how the value of, of you know, everything from cultural history to religion to uh, ethnicities and regions and all those different things that make countries amazing are, are, is like cannot be defeated by the internet because there's something about the way that we view that that is that surplants bits and bytes. So just to totally uh, get everybody canceled, I'm going to come on this. I'm going to come on down on the Star Trek side of the Star Trek. Star <laughs> um, and I, I agree with you that the whole post-economic thing of it is a little bit of a kludge. Although in the original Star Wars series, they don't get too much into the economics of the Empire either. One of the refreshing things about the Mandalorian is that you can actually see money being exchanged and like 
there's costs True. and heating and there's like an actual economy, which makes it feel kind of more real. Um, and, you know, the, I, you know, I suspect I'm going to now that it, we're, we've already just canceled ourselves, I'm going to I'm going to sort of postulate that there's probably a political bias on the Star Trek Star Wars divide. And I suspect Republicans go Star Wars and liberals go Star Trek because it's a little bit more lefty and kind of utopic in its vision. But yeah, that's basically yeah. data whatsoever. I have no idea. But so getting back to one thing you said earlier, Aaron, and getting back to my diagnosis of the nation state as being kind of on its deathbed. Um, I mean, if it, if it wasn't on its deathbed, why aren't we seeing more nation states born? Why, why is the birth rate of this weird species of this weird thing called a nation state basically zero? I, I kind of snark tweeted recently that like all these charter state projects are like Zionism without the Judaism, right? Like they all have, and you know, I was, and I, I like their effort to be clear. So, and in fact, Dryden's coming on my show at some point in the next few weeks. Oh, really? But, you know, uh, yeah. Dryden's I was, great. I was hanging with the Praxis people in New York during NFT NYC, and they all seem very well-meaning and very positive and all that. But it's like, what is, would you die for the Dow? Like, what, what is the moral glue here that's holding this together in some deep way, other than, you know, very smart, motivated people of goodwill trying to create an alternative? Other than that, what, what, what are you taking a bullet for here? And, and like, and it's, and by the way, I'm not just snark tweeting, like, I've talked to probably all these projects, Prospera, like, all these projects I've had conversations with and, and I wish them all the best. And I, I think it's exciting. People are working on it, but it just feels like there's something there kind of missing. Um, it's like when the in inevitable invasion happens, who's actually digging trenches in their front yards as happened during the Israeli war of independence. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so again, it, it, and it seems to, again, it seems to me like we just don't have the conviction to do that anymore. And if we don't have the conviction to create new nation states, we're going to be hard pressed to find the conviction to maintain the ones we do have. Um, and yeah. Again, I don't know. I don't know what comes next, and I'm not super bullish on Balaji. By the way, total plug, Balaji is coming on. I think next week uh, to discuss his book, which is coming out next week. And so oh, cool. we will we'll take it up with Balaji. For those who don't know, Balaji has a book called Network State that he's been very hush hush about. He has not given anyone, as far as I know, review copies. At least not me. And he's not doing a lot of pre-launch publicity, but he's going to talk about it when it comes out July 4th next week. Yeah. Um. So. Um. In any case, yeah, so I don't know what comes. Because like the disembodied network state, I'm not sold on either. But I, I don't yeah. Know. yeah, same, same. Yeah, because because I think that it, it often those people that are presenting it, uh, they don't have a deep appreciation for like history in terms of like what has created good nation states, what has created like longevity, right? Like in terms of the Commonwealth, as an example, like they typically have a very shallow understanding about what created the Commonwealth and like what created that strength. And and uh, what I've seen, if you look at is uh, uh, looking at let's say, uh, you know, everything from like Africa to Europe, which I think actually is kind of like a good like analysis, because I think that that kind of touches at two different points of, of what I think drives the lack of creation of new nation states. Uh, so, you know, one is the, you know, more alignment of like, you know, I'm Christian and you're Jewish. And that, that sort of uh, identity and metaphysical layer is a lot of the things I think that has sort of encompass uh, the way Europe looks today. And that there is a sort of like raison d'etre that is that is metaphysical, that's like independent of, you know, you know, let's just say like uh, actual sort of ethnic and, and historical lineage. Now, that still is a, obviously a huge factor in like, you know, there is a uh, one of the most famous sort of assertive philosophers, right, is uh, is Derrida. Right. And so one of the famous stories around Derrida was that when he came back to France, that he was, you know, not considered French because he was not born in, in Normandy. Right. He was not considered part of the sort of cultural empire of what it means to be French. And that like influenced a lot of his uh, sort of absurdist writings uh, in terms of like not belonging. Right. 
and you know also for like Camus, also it's very similar in terms of like the broader sort of sort of French existentialism had a sort of similar uh, experience where they like didn't exactly fit into uh, the the lineage of what it means to be French. And, and that is both like religious and also like historical lineage related to the region, right? And and so I, I think that that is a lacking of a lot of the meaning and purpose behind the creation of nation states. And and the ones that have been created recently, right? Let's say, you know, um, uh, the Baltics, right? Has had new ones being created. Uh, and in Africa, there's been some like South Sudan, there's been like new ones being created. Uh, and And so the... I see that as like that the metaphysical, which like historical uh, historical precedent can create a metaphysical vision uh, for a society as they create meaning and purpose behind those things. And a lot of this sort of new experimentation around creating new nation states, uh, I think, lacks that. And I think it, it, it's it's very short sighted to assume I think you can create a quote unquote secular uh, new nation state uh, because you, I don't think humans, like you said, are willing to sort of dig the trench and sort of shoot, you know, shoot the gun at a sort of meaningless and purposeless experiment. And, and I bet, but that meaning, that that meaning has to be attached to something that, is, that I believe has been proven in human, in human nature to create like meaning and purpose around, right? So like religion, faith, uh, historical lineage, things like that. I think, I think the second reason, which is relates more to Africa and, and, and there's, there's a book, um, called uh, like why Africa that basically outlines like all the countries in terms of how they were created and why they're created that way and that's where i think the the other reason why there's like a suppressing effect which is the neoliberal order so like that that which includes both parties here you know politics is bigger than america you know like there can be a uniparty in many aspects and i think the neoliberalism is actually an element of that because obviously you know the one of the most famous neoliberals is george bush so the 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 that is a pressure i think that is applying where i i would agree with you related to the nation state that the nation state so defined by the baby boomers in America is not something that is sustainable. And it is something that is conflict is being created and that, and that nation state is eroding very quickly uh, with the internet being a, a, a fuel in that. But in Africa, that, that's where I think a lot of this sort of nation state division, which is a, AKA like independent of cultural lineage or, or religious lineage or any of these other things that are more metaphysical, that a lot of those lines were driven by our, politicians and, and basically pressure from different groups of people to go different directions. And, uh, and there's more of a political order that's actually establishing the way some of these things are, are working. And whether that is to, you know, drive a wedge between an enemy, right? Or, or it's like a, a uh, you know, there's a entrenched, you know, it, like entrenched corporate interests that like, that are, uh, you know, in, enhancing the, the way in which the sort of, uh, it's, it's kind of a weird detente in terms of like these are the lines and these will only be the lines, um, and and I think that that's where it's like less being driven I think by those metaphysical questions and and more driven by a political order and a class question. Uh, but I, I'm much more bullish on the on the uh, religious and historical lineage uh, because those have been proven to make new nations and that they give the the, the will to fight uh, to because it's hard. Like I mean, well, some aspect is like let's not you know like like sort of uh, underappreciate that making making a new nation is incredibly difficult, uh, and and so we don't have many examples of of that because it's it's very hard. Uh, so, but you know, Israel's is the greatest example I think of that though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's worth mentioning, as you said, you know, we're taught this map of the world when we're children, and we think it's stable, 
and that there's a thing called Spain because there's a square on the map that looks like Spain. But in fact, one of the more fascinating books I've read recently is uh, called Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson. And it's kind of a classic in the genre of like the politics and the, the sort of anthropology of, of founding nation states. And the, the short version of it is that every nation, even ones that you feel are deeply rooted in tradition, were actually invented. Um, you know, as, as I often comment, Italy and Germany are younger than the state of Florida <laughs> as a political entity, right? There was, there was not a Germany, up, you know, until Bismarck unified it, um, or Garibaldi in the case of Italy, right? There was, there was provinces that were variously administered, often through dynastic empires, and mm -hmm. it, it had to be systematized. And, and in the words of Benedict Anderson, it was print capitalism, the notion of, like, mass media that would basically systematize the notion of a German language based on Goethe or a, an Italian language based on, you know, Petrarch and Dante or whatever. But that had to be invented, right? You, you had to create this, and, and you could still see kind of, the you know, the glitches in the national matrix emerge occasionally, like in Spain, for example. So Franco basically crushed a lot of the regional languages throughout yes. his dictatorship from the late 30s up until, uh, basically until I was born. And so, you know, Spanish democracy is like younger than me. And you see it now. Like I was living in Barcelona when I was writing Chaos Monkeys. And it's funny, it was, I, I hadn't been there in like 10, 15 years, but everyone was speaking Catalan, including the youth. Like that's what they identified with. And there was clearly an effort by the local, you know, political powers to amp up Catalan identity to sort of basically amplify their power in the, in the sort of sempaternal struggle with Madrid and all the regionalism and all the politics that you have inside Spain. And so you, you, you see it coming out, right? Like, and it's funny. So my family is actually from Galicia, which is in Northwestern Spain, much poorer, much more rural. It also struck me. You, you hang around La Coruña, the, the capital city, young people speaking Galician, which is this provincial language that like peasants would speak in. My grandmother spoke Galician, but like nobody else in the family did. And, but there of course, the nationalism is less strong, or rather the separatism is less strong. They see themselves as Galician within this tapestry of regional identity in Spain, and they don't really want to break away, and it's it's a very different vibe. But in any case, just to comment that, like, even the nation states, like, again, what we call today the nation state was one thing, and that had to be invented kind of on the back of a lot of these ethnic identities. Again, the, you know, the French we speak today is not actually the French language. It's the regional dialect that was spoken in Paris when it became yep. politically established. And there's a whole region of, of Spain called, uh, sorry, of France called Languedoc because Oc in that dialect is how they would say yes rather than we. Oui. And so they, the provincial name is actually literally the people who speak a different language than the Parisian French that we know. And so all, all these states had to be cobbled together uh, in its political process. And anyhow, that's part of the reason why I think they can also fall apart, right? Because something that, get, that gets created in a very artificial, very sudden way can also, far, can also fall apart just as quickly. And not, not just in the U.S., which again, is very much the extreme in terms of an invented nation. It's, it's literally, a, a, it's a, it's a 20 some odd page document and nothing else that defines the American nation. And yep. um, that's, that's, that's less true in Spain. Like I, you know, I can point to the 12th century church that my mother was baptized in and say that is Spain, or at least that's Galicia, or that's something, right? And that's kind of harder to do in the U.S. But again, even there, it's still kind of invented, right? I, I would go to I would go to Catalonia. I'm a Spaniard, and people would speak to me in Catalan. They'd pretend not to speak Spanish, by the way. The Catalans are kind of annoying that way. And there'd be this like wedge, and you'd just be stuck. And I don't speak a word Catalan, and it would just be annoying. Um, and you'd see you could see the national fabric fall away <laughs> before your eyes, Aaron. Although of course nothing yeah. really happens because it's Europe and everyone's too happy, so nobody really fights. But um, in any case, um, cool. Well, shit, we're almost at the end of an hour. Is there anything else about the hydro hosting side you, you want to talk about, Aaron? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground in terms of, you know, we, got, we definitely got, like, philosophical at the end. So the, 
but, but yeah, like they, I, I think that if you're, you know, you're thinking about, uh, you know, what is the sort of future of hosting? What is the future of the infrastructure of the internet? I think that just as you, as you, uh, you know, quibbed earlier, that uh, all of these sort of decentralized platforms are running on a centralized platform, and and which is AWS or Azure or something like that. So, so the the reality is that like sovereignty, uh, uh, from an application perspective, is if you're you know using a public cloud provider, like you know you're essentially not, and and so I, I think that as as boxes become cheaper, privacy and data become, uh, uh, privacy and security become increasingly uh, an issue, whether for legal reasons or for foreign policy reasons, or just because, you know, you don't want people looking at your stuff, uh, that, that, that uh, you just like public cloud itself is at a disadvantage. And, and so, uh, you know, Hydra is, is optimized for a world where you, you can run one user in a data center, one user in the cloud, one user in a boutique cloud provider, you know, a French user in a French data center. Uh, and, and we think that that's actually gonna be the future of the world of compute. Uh, and, it, and it's not gonna be a, a, you know, single center that runs all of Europe. And, and so the, the, you know, of course, like, you know, IBM still exists today, even though probably, you know, not many of your followers know exactly what IBM does, neither do I, but it's still worth, you know, X billion dollars. So of course, like, AWS public cloud providers are still going to exist and they're still going to be profitable. They're still going to make a lot of money. Uh, but the, the future of, of hosting and infrastructure is just as applications are becoming decentralized, the, the infrastructure itself is going to become de decentralized because first, boxes are cheaper. Second, that uh, moving to the customer, closer to the customer is what everyone wants. And and then the third is sort of these like, you know, I could say maybe uh, – external to uh, meta to uh, technology itself, which are cultural trends and political trends, foreign policy reasons. Uh, and so like hosting is going to become more like regional utilities uh, yeah, rather than just having like one provider that runs the entire nation. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I, I think it's also worth distinguishing between like decentralized and dis distributed. Somebody had like sure. a viral which they were like nerding out on the differences and it, it's a meaningful difference, right? Cause like all the, like web three is very decentralized, but literally all of it might be running on AWS and literally the exact same server form, right? It is not yeah. distributed at all. It's decentralized in the sense that the control of the data is spread among many sort of authorities at some level, but it's, it's not actually distributed in the sense that like a single nuke could still bring it down in theory, even though in practice probably doesn't work that way just because the nature of mining and whatnot makes it distributed just by by nature, but it, 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 it could be the case that all of Ethereum ran inside literally the same building and it would still call itself decentralized. True. Um, and, and again, yeah, if, if that building goes down, that's when Ethereum goes down or probably more like Solana or something. But um, in any case, um, man, it's interesting. It's, it's bizarre when, when humans again <laughs> decide to, you know, disembody their voices and their thought in, in the form of pure logic and language, how complicated things get. I still think that decoupling bits and atoms was like a major thing. We're only seeing the beginning of it. And this is either a catastrophe, this is actual, like the great filter, why we don't see intelligence in the universe, or it's one of these like propelling moments in which humans actually become even more like gods when, you know, their thought and their language can live on beyond like, you know, the atoms and cells of their actual physical existence. I, I, I don't know. It, it, yeah. I, I guess it, it could be both. <laughs> but, well, um, well you, have, you have to deal with the, the big question of like, what makes information? Right. Is information bits and atoms or information a, a consciousness, right? Of like, you know, the paper itself has ink in, in, in the physical paper, right? To, to create 
uh, information, but that is that itself the information. So it's it's a uh, th th that's why I'm, I'm much more on the side of the Star Trek universe as as you uh, are. Sorry, so much more on the side of the Star Wars universe rather than Star Trek because I, I don't think that that's actually programmable. Uh, and uh, I think actually you shared an article about the sort of the limits of of, of driver based AI and sort of the ceiling that they're reaching. And uh, and I, th I think you did, or or, or maybe Zach did, or somebody. So uh, and and yeah, because because that's that is my essential as well that that there is there is something about the brain which is you know we should not assume that all of that is available knowledge uh, today is all that is, that is like is all knowledge right and and as uh, you know neuroscience continues to become more advanced and that there's more research and there's more discovery, it becomes even more and more complex. Like obviously the, you know, Francis Collins in terms of the great uh, leap forward he's created in terms of discovering that biology itself is information. It's a computer, right? Uh, so what creates that, right? Like what, what is the, the, this, this, the, 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 the origination of that like information? Cause it can't be biological because there's no mechanism we have that actually is fundamentally biological that makes information like that doesn't exist. So, so what does that mean, right? Uh, and that, I think that is the ultimate question in terms of like bits and atoms of like, can you actually make a, a, theoretically you should be able to make a replicant of like, if a human is a mind, it theoretically can make another mind. But is that thing actually, you know, conscious? Is that thing a being, right? Uh, and uh, so I, I, I'm less, uh, yeah, I'm much more Star Wars. I think that it's gonna be much more limited than we think. It's not being too much. But hey, it's, I get, it's still got lightsabers. So let's not think too much the limits of self-driving cars because actually Tesla's full self-driving is driving the vehicle as I'm talking. So let's let's hope that on a highway, on a highway. On a highway. Right? Yes, I'm not touching the wheel. Yeah. It is just driving. It's it's miraculous. It's been doing it for two hours in Torino. It's amazing. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, this, I, I don't know like, that whole just to, we have to wrap up the show. But the whole self-awareness thing on computers, I think, is like completely a red herring. And I always quote um, famous computer scientist Dijkstra, we all know him from like graph theory courses, who said, you know, asking whether a computer thinks is like asking whether a submarine swims, right? Like it, the, the question it has no it has no meaning outside of a human doing it. I mean, it, it moves through the water at 40 knots and a human cannot or a computer can actually solve some linear regression in microseconds and a human cannot. And that's it. And asking whether it thinks or not, you end up in situations like that Google engineer who, you know, Basically, he got like hacksawed by his own Turing test. He he thought that this computer. Um, and anyhow, I, the best tweet I saw about that was, by the way, is that scientists discovered the first Google's first self-aware software engineer. We <laughs> 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 finally found one because none of them were self-aware before. Um, in any case, um, Aaron, thanks for um, thanks for joining us. Sorry, Polar Crest crowd, for the road noise. I promise, next week we have Balaji talking about the network state. And I'll be back on my fancy little headset that introduces no noise. Um, and, but in any case, uh, thanks for joining. And um, Aaron, I'll post this soon, and it'll it'll be available where all fine podcasts are sold, and so it's uh, uh, it's shareable. But thanks for uh, thanks for joining me on uh, on the Colin show. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Have a good day. See you, man. Bye.